Well, we are exploring some areas in this sermon series where the evangelical church in America is drifting toward heresy. And so we're calling this series, really? The State of American Theology. Why is this series important? Well, Paul wrote this in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. You see, that warning from Paul ought to make us really consider and think about what we hear from pulpits, even this pulpit. Therefore, I want to ask, do we really believe some of these things that they say we do in the survey? This survey asked them to react to this statement. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 73% of American evangelicals said, yes, I agree with that statement. 73%. Yikes, is what I said. Have we turned aside from the truth? And now we have turned toward myths. See, the vast majority of those surveyed believe that Jesus was created by God. That is a form of Arianism. It was a popular heresy that arose in about the 4th century, the 300s AD. Those believing it, it caused such a stir in the church that it led to the gathering of the very first ecumenical council. All church, you know, get all the churches together, get their leaders together, and they decided, you know, we got to talk about this. And out of this council, which took place in the, in the um, northwest part of Tur modern Turkey, in the city of Nicaea, they came up with what we now know as the Nicene Creed. And this morning, this series is about sound doctrine. As Paul puts it in 2 Timothy, you might not get, this is a warning this morning, you might not get what your ears are itching to hear today. But we have to think correctly. And I'm sure we have our areas where we've got our blind spots, but, but in this area, we, we have to be very careful about what we believe about Jesus, or we will drift out of control very quickly. See, at the root, I, I wonder, of, of America's bad theology is there is at our core a love for mysticism. This mysticism is the assumption that you can come to know God just by meditating about him, whatever comes into your mind. Contemplate him. There's this hidden way of life that that's how you find God. It's a completely subjective process that rejects objective truth that comes from the scriptures. You see, at the root of sound doctrine, we have to, we have to find out what the scripture says. So we're going to have a dose of sound doctrine this morning. Is Jesus the first and greatest created thing or being? Okay, don't answer the question yet. <laughs> Let's start with a little bit of history, shall we? A little bit of history. What you have to understand about church history is that people don't walk away from the New Testament with a fully formed systematic theology. They wrestled with the truth about who this Jesus is in the decades and in the centuries. That, that follow his ascension, you know, and they, 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 they 
saw those events, you know, in the first century, they heard about them, and well, what really happened? What was going on? And so ideas emerged, and people had their different opinions, and, and as the church began to, to, to move forward, they began to ask, well, what is true? What is orthodox? Orthodox just means generally or traditionally accepted as right or true. Orthodox just means it's a plumb line, and if you agree with this, that's good, and if you don't, there's something off. That's all orthodox means. And since the New Testament was not written as a book of systematic theology, it takes a while for the church to sift through what they think and how they interpret what the, what the New Testament and the Old Testament are saying. You can study church history and trace the issues through the centuries of what they were concerned about. In terms of bibliology, in other words, what do we believe about the Bible? What books are in it? They were still arguing about that in the 1500s. They were still trying to decide, what, what do we believe about this? Because famously, Martin Luther said, what about the book of James? It's an epistle of straw. And so they, were, they really were still wrestling with, what's, the, what's this Bible thing? But after that, you don't, after that period, they kind of settled it. They have the list. They have, you know, you got your index in the front, and it's fairly well agreed upon. But soon after that, then in, I mean, before that, in the 300s, the first issue out of the shoot is who is and what is the nature of Christ? And the religious leadership wrestles with that issue. What really happened when Jesus came? Who was he? How does he relate to God? How do we make sense of the incarnation? And it took them a while. It took them 300 years to figure out what is the orthodox position on that. Arius was a bishop, he was a leader of the church uh, up in Alexandria, in northern Egypt, right on the, on the Nile Delta. He taught that God the Son was at one point created by God the Father. Before that point in time, the Son did not exist, and neither did the Holy Spirit, because he taught then Jesus, as one of his first acts was, he made the Holy Spirit. And so only the Father is eternal. Jesus was created out of nothing, and as the first and greatest of all creatures, he then, in turn, created the universe. Yet because of the power and the honor that's been given to him, you, you could look at him as God and, and worship him as God. Most Arians, they also hold that the Spirit was the first of the, those created beings by Jesus. He, he made the Spirit. So this, therefore, meant that Jesus was a God who had a beginning. If Jesus is a God who had a beginning, uh, does he have an end? You see, that's the problem. In demanding us to worship a created Christ, the Arians were doing what all idolaters do. They're worshiping the creature, not the creator. And so this controversy continued for a really long time in the early church. It was very serious. It agitated believers all over the Roman Empire. What is the rule? You know, how are we going to settle this? Well, they have an example. What was, what, was, what was the first issue that confronted the church? It was in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. Does a Gentile have to become a Jew to become a, a follower of Christ? Do you have to be circumcised to be a Christian? Now, this is the first initial nature of salvation issue. And what did they do? Well, they had a church council. 
Acts 15. That's what that's all about. They went to Jerusalem, and there they decided what was orthodox. So after the New Testament closes, the nature of Christ himself becomes an issue because Arius concluded that deity, it can't really come on earth, not for a long extended period of time. So he has to be some, some other thing. He's a second essence which God created. That way he can come to earth. And he taught that the son, though the son's a heavenly being who existed before the rest of creation, and he's far greater than the rest of creation, he's still not equal to the father. They are not equal in their attributes and their characteristics. He may be like the father. He may be similar to the father, but he's not of the same nature as the father. And so to settle this controversy, the emperor Constantine calls for a church council. Set president in Acts 15, so let's do it. And he calls the, the council to meet in the city of Nicaea. And when they go to the city of Nicaea, their goal was to come up with a statement which would be acceptable to the whole church. Let's get everybody on the same page. So, you know, we can state what is correct and you can decide whether you're orthodox or not. So 318 church leaders. How are you going to get agreement? You know. They showed up to Nicaea for this council. They came from all over the Mediterranean. It lasted two months and 12 days, I think. Yep, two months, 12 days. Two months to discuss what we're going to do in 35 minutes. If you're lucky, 40. But out of this first church council came the Nicene Creed, which relates to our topic today. And this is part of the Nicene Creed. This is what they concluded. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father, God of God, light of lights, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. That became the statement of orthodoxy. If you were a, a, a true believer in Christ, this is what you believed. That became it for the church. But the Arians, they were a stubborn lot. For another 56 years, they kept spreading what they thought around in these churches, in small groups and stuff. And so the church leaders had to come together again, this time in Constantinople in 381, 56 years later, to clarify. They kind of overlooked the Holy Spirit the first time, so now they fixed that, and they added a statement to, to really firm up what they believed about Christ. We'll get to that in a minute. But we want to dig deep into the biblical text this morning. Arius used the Bible to prove his position. So let's explore a couple of the issues one way or another. We had a little bit of history. We're going to have a lot of bit of Bible. I was trying to add a little humor to the sermon this morning. I don't think that's grammatically correct. Deal with it. You've got to stay awake. There are several issues around the person of Christ that we need to explore. Arius pointed as part of his proof that the Bible says that Jesus was the only begotten and that he was the firstborn among creation. So those terms, they're still in our text today. So what do they mean? Well, let's explore. Number one, only begotten. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
We have seen his glory, the glory of the NIV says, one and only son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John 3, 16, for God, we don't need to read that, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his, we know it, if you're older than me, only begotten son, that now the NIV says the, the one and only son. John 3, 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only, same word, son. 1 John 4, 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son, his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Arius read those texts and concluded that if Jesus is called only begotten or one and only, well, that's not as clear. If, if, if he's called God's only begotten son, that must mean that he was brought into existence by the father. Because the word beget in human experience re refers to the role of the father in, in, in bringing about children. So what does John mean? Well, the NIV has translated it, one and only. The King James, the New American Standard, are sticking with, well, because they can't change the King James, so it's, what it says is, it's only begotten. But they both translate one single Greek word, monogenes. Okay, you're gonna get Greek, I know. It's in English up here. And I, I made it easy. Mono, you know what mono means? Not the disease, the singular. Not mononucleosis. It means one, and genes means, I don't know, begotten, birthed, whatever. Okay? One birthed or one coming about, born, one born. It's variously translated in English as only begotten or one and one and only. It's only in the King James and New American that we get this only begotten. And that's what causes us trouble. Now, Arius didn't have the King James. You realize that. <laughs> so, so he didn't have the word only begotten. He just had this monogenes. Okay? But people have today, they latch onto this King James translation and they say, well, if, if it's only begotten, then, you know, Jesus isn't equal to the Father. He's, he's the second, you know, the father's first, and then there's this, this son. And what that fails to take into account, however, is that begotten is in the English translation of this Greek word. So what do we have to do? We have to discover what this Greek word means. So how do you do that? See, we're learning theology here. How do you do that? You pull out your Greek dictionary. You got one of those, right? Of Koine, not modern Greek, Koine Greek. And they, they do exist. They're quite fascinating. You grab that dictionary, and it says there's two uses or, or meanings of that word monogenes. The first one is that it pertains to the one, it pertains to being the one, I should have put it on the screen so you could actually understand it. It pertains to being the only one of its kind within a specific relationship. Monogenes, it means, it means being the only one of a kind in a specific relationship. You will understand it in Hebrews 11, verse 17. This word is used. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his monogenes, his one and only son, his only begotten son. Is Isaac 
the only begotten son of Abraham? Was he even the first son of Abraham? No. Abraham had a lot of kids. How was he the unique son? Well, he was the son of promise. He's the only one of, of uh, Abraham and Sarah. Okay? He is the unique. He's the son of the covenant. Okay? Therefore, it is the uniqueness of Isaac among his other sons that allows the use of the word monogenes. He's the only son of this kind, the son of the covenant in relationship to his father Abraham. There's another way you can use the word, and, and they, the Greeks use it this way. It means to pertain to being the only one of its kind or class, unique in kind. It's the only one of its kind. It's unique. It's the meaning, I think, in John 3, 16, in those other texts we read. Because John's purpose is to do what? John 20, verse 31. He is there to declare that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he uses monogenes, this word one and only, to highlight the uniqueness of the Son of God. He uses it to just point him out as a different class. Jesus shares the same divine nature as God. Unlike us, we have been adopted into our sonship. He's a son by birth or by natural. He's the one and only son. He's in a class or a kind all his own. Because when the Bible uses terms such as father, son, to, to describe God and Jesus, they're human terms. They're trying to describe for us something that we might be able to understand because we know the father and son relationship. And if you can understand the relationship between a human father and a human son, then you can begin to understand the godly relationship between the father and the son. But if you try to push that analogy too far and teach as, as some really false religions, cults like Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus was literally begotten, produced by the father, you've pushed the illustration too far. Jesus is God's unique son. He's a one of a kind. You can call him only begotten if you'd like, but remember, it's not about procreation. Monogamous is not about that. It's this unique relationship between the father and son. And when we modern ears hear only begotten, we just we think of, of, of the physical relationship. But it's not the literal begetting of a son to a father. It's the one and only, and have you got it right? It's, it's this uniqueness. One and only, only begotten. The second place Arius would go, and you would go, is, and can cause some confusion, is firstborn. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Well, that seems to support what Arius taught. Jesus is the first of many created beings. Re really? Is that what Paul means? Well, I don't think so. I think Paul means that Jesus has the rights or the privileges of the firstborn. Firstborn in a biblical culture means that you have the right of leadership in your family. You have the authority in your generation. It doesn't always mean that you are the firstborn in chronological order. You see this play out in Hebrews, again, Hebrews 12, 16. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the eldest son. 
Oh. Esau is said to have sold what? His rights as the eldest son. He couldn't sell whether he was the firstborn or not. He's always going to be the firstborn. But he sold his firstborn position in the family. You can't change your birth order, but the word of the phrase has nothing to do with, first, with, with birth order. It has everything to do with the rights and privileges, the authority, the inheritance rights of being the firstborn son. And so it is with Jesus. He has the rights and the privileges which belong to the firstborn. Not just in the family, but over all creation. NIV gets it right. The firstborn over all creation. So now, let's go back to the Nicene Creed. The church felt so strongly that the rest of the New Testament taught that Jesus was fully and completely God that it concluded in those places, this is what that means. Whatever monogamous only begotten meant, it didn't mean created. So 56 years later, they come back in 381 to Constantinople this time, and they add a couple of phrases to clarify what they meant back in 325. And this is what they said. Uh, this is the part that changed. And in, and in one Lord, they believe in God the Father. That paragraph didn't change. And in one Lord, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father, and then it adds the words, before all ages. They wanted to clarify that, that it's, it's, it's eternal. It's before the world, before in, in the beginning of time. Why the edit? Because they wanted to be clear that this begetting, whatever that, that, that it is, it was eternal. It never began to happen. It always was. And so the Nicene Creed is a very strong statement against Arianism. It insisted that Jesus Christ was the same substance as the Father. And this whole dispute that racked the church for a hundred years was over one letter. You want to really, you're going to really get down in the weeds now. Because the, the words they, they're arguing about is homoousios. Okay? Homo, I, I, it's one word, but I split them out for you so you can see the difference. And the other word was homoousios. See, the I? Homoousios, you know what, you know what the word homo means, it's singular, okay? So one, and then usios is substance. One substance at the top, on the bottom is similar. They're, they're, they're kind of like each other. And Arius was good with homoousios, he was not good with homoousios. And the church argued for over a hundred years which word is correct. But at the councils of Nicaea and again at Constantinople, they decided it has to be homoousios, the same substance. For if Christ is not of exactly the same nature as the Father, he is not fully God. One single Greek letter. But the difference between these two words is profound. Arianism hung around for you know, a while. It disappears finally in 650 A.D. But uh, maybe it's coming back in modern America. That's sad. It's not coming back here. An abundance of implications. I, I knew the grammar police would be... I, I really wanted to say a lot of bit of implications. 
<laughs> it's in my notes, though, a lot of <laughs> implications. Then I, I, I used a thesaurus, and I ended up with an abundance of implications, just to keep you awake. Is that all, is this all that important? I, I, I actually think it is. What's at stake? Number one, the atonement is at stake. If Jesus is merely a created being, if he's not fully God, God then it's hard to see how a creature could bear the full weight of the wrath of God on our sin. Could a creature save us? No matter how great he is? Because you see, at the cross, you find the very throne of God. This isn't a creature at the cross. It's the very person of God. The atonement is at stake. Second, justification by faith is at stake. If we deny the full deity of Jesus, if he is just another not another, if he is the greatest even of created beings, can he really save us completely? Can we trust him? Can we depend on a creature fully for our salvation? Why do you think the Jehovah's Witnesses have gone to the place where you gotta do all this stuff? Because Jesus is a creature, you can't depend on that. So you better do stuff to make sure of your salvation. There is no assurance of salvation without the full deity of Jesus. Just make sure you do enough stuff to make God smile, then you're okay. Third, our worship is at stake. I mean, if Jesus is not an infinite being, why do we even pray to him? Why? Should we even worship him? I mean, who but an infinite, omniscient God could hear and respond to all the prayers of his people? Who but God is worthy of our worship? And if Jesus is merely a creature, no matter how great, it's actually idolatry to worship him. And yet the New Testament commands us to worship him. Philippians 2, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name, we sang about this, that above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, God, to the glory of God the Father. Revelation 5, in a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. You don't praise a creature. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell, fell down and worshiped. They worshiped him. Think about this. We often give thanks to the Father for giving us his Son. But have you ever thought that perhaps we ought to give thanks to Jesus for giving us the Father? There's no access to the Father without him. There's no other possibility of meeting God as Father except in him who is declared to be the Son of God. 
It's through Jesus we can say, Abba, Father. It's through Jesus that our broken relationship with him is, is restored. Fourth implication is God's honor is at stake. If someone teaches that Jesus was a created being, but also the one who saves us, then who gets the credit? The created being. Are we going to give credit to our salvation to a created being or to God? Because if Jesus is not fully God, then we're giving credit to a creature. And the Bible never allows us to attribute to a creature that which belongs to God. And my question that I wrestled with all week is, okay, you guys all go to work, you got live. What's the practical application of this to our lives? I've tried to demonstrate some of the practical ramifications in those four things, but they're really its implications on other areas of theology. What is this biblical truth supposed to do to you or for you? I mean, you may know the orthodox truth about Jesus Christ, but what difference does that make in the way you live and really in the way that you worship? How does this truth move how you feel? Well, it ought to lead us to the heart of biblical religion because it's truth like this that should lead us to the very heart of God because that we, we get to know something of what God is like and what's the proper response to truth that God reveals about himself. But let's be honest, we face confusing times, do we not? In our days, with all of what's going on, how do we respond to God? You can tell what you believe about God. If it fil filters down to the practical level of how you live. In Habakkuk's day, you can tell that Habakkuk truly understood who God was. At the beginning of the book, he's questioning God. There's horrible circumstances in his life. And yet, as he lives through those confusing times, he gets a vision of who God is. He says this at the end, Habakkuk 3, 17, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no fruit, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, this is all, in an agrarian society, horrible stuff. So what if the stock market crashes? What if you lose your job? What if you find out, I got cancer? What if this runaway inflation doesn't end for a really long time and the, the, the shelves at the grocery store are empty? Whatever, fill in a modern illustration. What then? Habakkuk says in verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. Can you say those things in your own life and mean them? The single most important observation from Habakkuk is this, as the book ends, None of those circumstances had changed that came up at the beginning of the book. 
The circumstances of the people around him were the same at the beginning and the end. They had still forgotten God at the end of the book. Violence still reigned in Jerusalem. The Babylonians were still ready to oppress, and the wicked were just giving the righteous people trouble. Hard times were coming, and there was nothing anyone could do about it, and nothing had changed except this. Habakkuk changed on the inside. He knew what he believed about God. We can face the weak and let the truth of Jesus Christ, who he really is, fully God, having walked among us. We can live that way. But I would say we have only applied the truth of this message to our heart when we're at the point where we can grasp the, the, the reality that no matter what happens, we have victory in Christ, that Jesus really does satisfy us. So the application is, does Jesus satisfy you? Is he adequate in your life? Is he enough? The application, go home this week. First of all, go home. Carve out some time to think deeply about orthodox biblical truth. Is that something you should believe? If it is, is it something that changes within you how you approach life? Because if Jesus is not a created being, then he, he deserves to be at the center of your life. I'm asking you to do what David asked us to do. Psalm 27, verse 8, my heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. And if this series awakens your heart to identify with that psalm of David, then I've done my job. This week, Meditate on the deity of Jesus Christ. Think about it correctly. Of the same substance as the Father. Explore what that means to you. Feel it in the depths of your soul. Seek God with all your heart. I have nothing else to say. That will change us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your goodness and for your grace. We thank you for a Savior who is of the same substance of the Father. I can't, I, I try to picture this week what it would have been like for Peter and the apostles to meet you and to come to the realization of who you really are. Overwhelm us with who you really are this week. Keep our faith true. Keep our hope deep in you. In Jesus' name, amen.